At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. As we begin a new year, we're going to open God's Word and begin a new sermon series. And the title for this sermon series is The New Normal. Now, let's get honest for just a moment. When I just put that graphic on the screen, some of you just shuddered a little bit. I saw it. You kind of quivered like, oh, no, what's he going to talk about? Uh, we're, we're, we're not too certain about this topic. And as we go from 2020 into 2021 and we talk about the new normal, how many of you does that expression create a positive feeling and how many of you does that expression create a negative feeling? So we're going to take this vote, a real vote, with your thumbs. And this is true for all of us in the room. It's also true for all who are watching online, okay? So here's what I want you to do. If that phrase excites you, makes you happy and content, I want you to give me a thumbs up. If that phrase concerns you in some way, I want you to give you a thumbs down. What, 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 is, what is it? I don't see very many thumbs. Now, it's hard for me. We'll, we'll have the absentee ballots from around the state and nation uh, counted later, but it sure looks like a lot of the early returns are that this is not a very exciting topic, to which I'm really happy I picked it as a seven-week <laughs> sermon series. Uh, I don't know what I was thinking. I had to pick the most polarizing topic in the world to begin the new year with. So, for what it's worth, we're going to be in this series. Now, when I say new normal, you're automatically thinking that I'm talking about a change in a number of the ways in which we live our lives right now. And the reason why it bothers you is you don't want those things to become permanent. You don't want us to pour concrete over some of those changes. I mean, you watch a sporting event right now and you hear people cheering and then you realize that it's just a video game that is cheering behind them. That's not normal. That's not a new normal. That's just weird, right? And when we think about how spread out we have to be, I mean, that's not something we want to pour concrete over. We want to get closer because God created us to congregate and to be around one another. It, it may be necessary, but it's not normal, right? So when we talk about a new normal and you run that through the grid of 2021, you immediately have this negative feeling. But then you add on to all of those things that we don't want to make permanent. You go ahead and add on to that just the fear that many of us have with this word in general, new. It bothers us, especially if the new is going to replace anything old that we like. We're okay with new if it sits alongside the old. But new that replaces the old, that bothers us. If you don't believe me, just go into your attic sometime. Why do you keep the things that you keep? I was in my attic this last week. I looked around. I saw some of the stuff that we had up there, and I wondered, why in the world did we keep that old thing? Well, the reason why we kept it is because somehow it felt better to add the new alongside the old. If it was in our house, even out of sight, we just felt better that it was around, right? And there are things in your house that, are, that fall into that same category. So in addition to the things that we don't want to make permanent, there are also challenges we have even just with this word new. 
Well, for all of those reasons, we need to remember something about this sermon series. And the first thing that we need to know is this. I'm not going to talk about anything related to a virus. Because the new that we're talking about is not just a new for 2021, but it's actually something new that was inaugurated 2,000 years ago. It's the new that Jesus came to normalize. You see, Jesus, when he came, established something new. He called it, God calls it, a new covenant, a new agreement between God and man. In this new covenant that Jesus came changed everything. It wasn't to be added alongside the old. It came to replace the old. It came to create an entirely new way for all of us to relate to God. And if you want evidence and proof for how that is true, that's why you and I can go to lunch today and have bacon on our cheeseburger. Because the old was replaced by the new. And that came about through Jesus. Jesus came to create a new normal, a new way that men and women like you and me can connect and relate to God. Understanding that new normal and that new change will help us understand the connection between the Old Testament of the Scriptures and the New Testament. It will help us understand how we not only come into a relationship with God, but how we live out that relationship every day. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to see this new normal discussed and laid out for us in the first two chapters of the book of Galatians. And today we're going to kick off that series by beginning in Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and turn in it to Paul's letter to the Galatians. And we are going to read these five verses, and then after I read them, we'll back up and we'll make a couple of observations about the new that Jesus has normalized for all of us. Galatians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, friends, in these five verses, really the introduction to this letter, we're going to see two things today that help set the stage for us to understand the new that Jesus has normalized. Well, what are those two things? Well, the first thing we're going to see is this. We need to listen to our living Lord. We need to listen to our living Lord. Now, this first idea is anchored in the first two verses of Galatians 1. And in these verses, we really have a very standard opening to a first century letter. When Paul wrote letters to his friends in churches around the Mediterranean Sea, uh, he would begin those letters with kind of an envelope. You know, when you get a letter from someone, there's an envelope, and on that envelope, there is who the letter was from and who the letter is to, written in different parts of that envelope. Well, the first five verses of Galatians chapter 1 are really the envelope that contains the letter that we're going to look at throughout 2021 here as a church family. So in, that, in these verses, we see who the letter is from and who the letter is to. 
Now, the first thing that I want us to see is who the letter is to. Who are the, those that would receive this letter? Well, we see that in verse 2, where it says that this letter is to the churches of Galatia. Now, I want to make just a quick observation to see that when this says churches or congregations, plural, that is something that is unique in Paul's letters. When Paul wrote a letter to his churches, typically he focused on one particular congregation or wrote a letter to one particular individual. Individuals like Timothy or Titus or churches like Ephesus or Corinth. But in the letter to the Galatians, what we see is he writes this letter to a number of different congregations that were all in a geographic region known as Galatia. So this was a letter that would show up in one town, and that church would read it, maybe copy it down, and they would carry it on to the next town, and they would read it and copy it down. Now, who were these communities in Galatia that received this letter? Well, We remember where they are by understanding that Galatia was a province inside of the Roman Empire, and it occupied some territory that is what is in modern-day Turkey. And Paul visited this particular region during his first missionary journey, events that are recorded for us in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 14. What you see on this map here is these arrows that show the path that Paul traveled as he took that first missionary journey that took him by boat over to this region, and then up into the region called Galatia. You see it right there, with a number of different communities inside of it. And on this first missionary journey, Paul traveled to that region, and he preached the good news of Jesus Christ to all who lived there. Now, what happened when Paul showed up to that area and when he preached this message? What happened when he told them that Jesus Christ died for their sins, and that he rose from the dead. And when he invited them to place their faith and trust in Christ, what happened? Well, we see that by looking at Acts 13 and 14. As Paul went to a number of these different towns, revival broke out. When he went to the town of Pisidian Antioch, he preached the good news. And as he was preaching the good news, it caused such a stir that in the second week, they needed overflow seating. That's right, they, they zoomed it to a room elsewhere, and they put it on YouTube. No, they didn't do those things because those things didn't exist, but they did expand the message. More people continued to gather in Pisidian Antioch to hear Paul and his friend Barnabas talk about Jesus. And many who heard, both Jew and Gentile alike, were believing in Jesus Christ and trusting Him for the forgiveness of their sins. That was true not just in Pisidian Antioch, but also in the community of Iconium, when Paul goes to that city. Acts 14 tells us that revival broke out there too, that people were believing this message. They weren't just hearing it, but they were believing it. They were beginning to trust in Jesus, and he was changing their lives. He leaves Iconium, and he goes to another city, the city of Lystra. And in the city of Lystra, this amazing thing happens. Maybe you've heard this story before, but Paul and Barnabas go into that city. They begin proclaiming the good news of Jesus. They see somebody who is crippled that's never been able to walk, and they heal him. So he gets up, and he walks. And when that gentleman gets up and walks, the the people in this pagan area of Lystra, they begin to freak out. They had no category for this. How is it that someone can make this man who has never walked walk? And so they ran it through the only grid they had, and they said, he must be Zeus or Hermes to be able to do this kind of thing. He must be this Greek god of some kind. 
And so they bring in some animals to offer a sacrifice. And Paul and Barnabas have to clarify that they are no one to be worshipped. They are just a man, but they know the one who is able to do this, and that one is Jesus Christ. And not surprisingly, people are beginning to place their faith and trust in Christ in Lystra. And then they end up in Derby, and the same thing happens as they preach the good news and people begin to respond in faith. In this area also, Paul would meet his friend Timothy, who would become a partner in his ministry in the days ahead. And so in this region, Paul and Barnabas proclaimed the good news of Jesus, and revival broke out. But something else broke out. Not just revival, but also riots and opposition. Acts 13, verses 45 and 50, let us know that when he preached the good news in Antioch, says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. He immediately began to be refuted by those who did not believe in the city of Antioch, to the point that the opposition got so intense, they pushed them out of the city, and they headed on to Iconium. Well, what happened to them when they got to Iconium? Well, in Iconium, it says the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. What, what, a, what a graphic statement, right? They poisoned their minds. The Jews were not happy with the message that Paul was proclaiming, inviting Gentiles to follow Jesus. How dare he do such a thing? They were upset with the popularity and the content of his message, and so they began to try to twist it and change it and to gather people back to themselves. They get to the city of Lystra. Well, what happened in Lystra? It says, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. They, they tried to kill him. They threw rocks against his body and bruised it and broke it, and tried to take him out, but he survived. So throughout this region, we see this, this dynamic beginning to develop, and you begin to get a, a snapshot of what life was like to the churches in Galatia. It was a place where there was great revival, but it also was a place where there was tremendous opposition to the good news of Jesus. After Paul had made the circuit traveling through these cities, did he just wipe his hands and say, I'm done with you folks? No, he was a pastor, his shepherd. He loved these people. What does he do? Acts 14 tells us, it says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. You see the commitment that Paul has for these people? You see the love that he has for them? After seeing them come to faith, he, he goes back and circles back and connects with them and says, hey, the difficulties that we have experienced, the opposition that we've experienced, it's to be expected. Persevere. Hang in there. And in order to help them hang in there, in order to help them persevere, he helped these congregations get established with local leadership that would help guide them in the days ahead. And then when Paul made it all the way back to Antioch, not the Antioch in Pisidia, but the Antioch in Syria, where Paul had begun his trip, he picks up a pen and he writes them this letter to the Galatians. See, Paul was committed to them, and he wanted them to continue to embrace the new that Jesus had ushered in. Now, all of that is who this letter 
was to. But who's the letter from? Well, this letter was from Paul. The very first word we see in Galatians 1 is the name Paul. He's the one who composed this letter. Now, Paul had another name, right? How many of you know what Paul's other name was? Somebody want to shout it out for me? Somebody in a living room in Bartlesville, Oklahoma just said Saul. But some of you in the room got the right answer right too. Saul was uh, Paul's other name. Well, why did he change his name? Well, it's clear to move up in alphabetical order. He went from the S's to the P's. It was real clear why he did it. No, he changed his name because not just his name changed, but his life changed. His life was radically altered by Jesus. He went from somebody who was persecuting the church to somebody who was proclaiming Christ as resurrected and Lord. That change that Paul went through is something that we're going to see Paul talk about in the rest of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. So I'm not going to get into it in much depth right now, but I think it's important for us to know that Paul was writing this letter, someone who had been radically changed by the message of the gospel. Now, Paul, as he writes this, talks about how he himself is an apostle. Now, Keep in mind, Paul shows up in the Galatian region, and Paul is proclaiming something that is new, something that is not what the religious people and the religious leaders had been talking about in that region. And you can imagine that the religious leaders in the Galatian region would see Paul come into their area and say something like this, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, Paul, to show up in this place and to begin changing things that we have believed and taught and followed for a long, long time? Who are you, Paul? I mean, are you emboldened somehow by that group of Galileans that you're connected to? I mean, are are you somehow gaining your authority by Peter and the other disciples who are hanging out back in Jerusalem? Is it through some group of men that you gain your authority? Or is it not just men? Is it just a decision that you have made on your own? I mean, Paul, is it, is it you that have decided that you are of apostolic status, that you have the ability to herald this new thing? Or is it not a group of men or not yourself, but is it another man that has taken you aside and put their arm around you like this Barnabas character? I mean, who are you, Paul, to proclaim this message? Well, Paul, as if he anticipates that kind of a response, says to them, hey, guess what, guys? I'm an apostle. I am an apostle. I have been given a mission to go and to herald this message. I've been given a a mission to proclaim something that is new. But I did not get my authority from men. No council gathered in Jerusalem and took a vote that made me an apostle. I did not win a 9-3 election to gain apostolic status among the 12 in Jerusalem. And he says, not only that, but I didn't gain this status by myself. I didn't make it up. I I didn't get Barnabas to, to knight me in the woods one night. He says, I have gained this status not through men or by man. But he says, I gained this status through Jesus Christ. 
Now, there's a real problem with this statement. I mean, we, we're used to seeing these words close together, and so when we see it, we, we lose the impact of this a little bit. So let me, let me help with this. Th- just think for a moment. What was the difficulty of saying that he was given this apostolic mission by Jesus Christ? What was the difficulty? That's right, Michael, because Jesus was dead, right? From the perspective of the unbelieving people of Galatia, Paul was now saying that he had gained apostolic authority from a dead man. That would be like me saying, I am the senior pastor of Wildwood, something that today is the fifth year that I've been able to serve in this role, that I'm the senior pastor of Wildwood because George Washington said so. That would be my last day as senior pastor of Wildwood. You'd be like... Man has absolutely lost his mind. Dead people do not confer responsibility. But there's something significantly different about Jesus, isn't there? Paul says that it's through Jesus that he has his authority. And as Michael rightly reminded us, I don't know if if you could hear, it's a big room. But Jesus is not dead. He's not dead. He's been raised from the dead. How is it that Jesus can continue to offer apostolic authority to Paul? It's because he's not dead, he's alive. And how did Paul know that? Because he saw him with his own eyes. Paul was on the road to Damascus to round up and kill Christians when Jesus appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then he said, I've got a mission for you. I'm going to send you to be my light to the Gentiles, and you're going to go and take the message where those other 11 have failed to take it up to this point. The disciples had failed to mobilize this message to the nations, and so Paul was set aside as a special apostle to take the gospel outside the nation of Israel and two, all in that area of the world at that time that would set out a series of events that eventually would get the gospel all the way to you and all the way to me. You see, it was the risen Jesus who gave the responsibility to Paul to proclaim the new that he's going to lay out inside of this book. It was very important for Paul to know that when they were being asked to listen to him. They actually weren't being asked to listen to him. They were being asked to listen to the risen Lord, the living Lord who had sent him. It was Jesus' message. See, Paul is not going to talk about anything in the letter to the Galatians that Jesus didn't articulate inside of his life and ministry. It was Jesus who made this change. It was Jesus who ushered in this new. Paul was merely to be the proclaimer of that. And that's really important for the Galatians to remember, and that's really important for you and I to remember. Because here's the thing, friends. We ought to be skeptical when human beings say they're going to change God's ways. We ought to be skeptical about that, right? There are lots of groups of men and men who have tried to do this, right? In the world in which we live today, liberals want to say the Scripture is not accurate. There are parts in it that need to be changed or redlined. And what part needs to be changed or redlined? The the things that we don't like, right? If we don't like them, then they must be wrong. And so we want to... Liberals want to come to the Scripture, and they they want to change it. We ought to be skeptical of that when men and groups of men come along and want to change God's ways. 
naturalists want to appeal to the counsel of men, the counsel of science, to say that there can be nothing that is true except for that which can be repeated in a laboratory. But how is it that a group of men can make that determination? How is it that they might be able to change what God sees as possible? Because he can do things beyond what are within the natural limits, like raising Jesus from the dead. Think about not just those areas, but things like pluralism today. Men and groups of men have wanted to come together and say that there are many ways to God. That there's not just one way, there's many ways. We could get to God through our own efforts. We can get to God through Islam or through Hinduism or through any other world religion. They're all equally valid ways up the mountain. That's not what Jesus said. See, friends, we, we ought to be skeptical when people start talking about new innovations in religion. Because men and groups of men, it's above our pay grade to change things that big and that important. But who can change it? God can. And Jesus, fully God, can make something new come about in the way that we relate to God. And that absolutely, fundamentally ought to demand our attention. We need to listen to our living Lord. And in the days and weeks ahead, we're going to see that laid out for us. How might you prepare for this series? Just read the book of Galatians. Just pick it up. It's six chapters, which sounds like a lot until you realize that in your Bible, it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of five pages long. Just read it a few times and begin to see the new that Jesus has ushered in and the danger we have when we want to bring in the new that Jesus ushered in, but keep the old in our religious attic. We're going to see that laid out for us in the days ahead. The first thing we need to see from this passage is that we need to listen to our living Lord. There's a second thing that we need to see inside of these verses. And that that we need to see is this. Our living Lord rescues us. Our living Lord rescues us. Now, where do we see that? Well, we see that after the general introduction, after the envelope that says, from Paul to the Galatians. After that envelope, we we get to a general greeting, verse 3. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a way that Paul begins many letters. But after he makes that statement, he jumps right into some of the activity that our living Lord has done for us. He talks specifically about deliverance and forgiveness and rescue. Well, where do we see that? He says in verse 3 and following, he says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself... For our sins. Now, if you've been around the church for any period of time, this phrase is something that you're probably very familiar with. But don't let our familiarity with this phrase cloud the importance of it. The fact that Jesus gave himself for our sins is of utmost importance. It radically changes our lives and gives us an opportunity to connect with the God who created us forever. This reality of Jesus giving himself for our sins is something that is echoed throughout the scriptures and gives us hope and life and light. And not only do we see the truths that, are, that lie behind that revealed to us in the Bible, but they also match with our experience. So 
What do I mean when I say that? Well, when we talk about our sins, the Bible tells us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Romans 3.23 proclaims. But we don't have to just take the Bible's word for it, though that's a pretty good word to take. We also have our own experience that echoes this truth. All of us understand that we fall short of God's glorious standard. I heard somebody say recently that all of the bad mistakes that we have made in our life, all of our worst mistakes, all have one thing in common. You know what that thing is? Us. We were present for all of our bad decisions. All of us who have lived any time on this planet are well acquainted with the ways that we fall short. I was talking with some of our staff earlier this week about why criticism stings so much and why we hang on to it. I think the reason why criticism stings so much and we hang on to it is because all of us are aware that we're broken. And when somebody criticizes us, we just feel found out, right? The Word of God has a category for that. It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the problem with that is that the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 lets us know that. But again, we don't have to just take Romans 6.23's word for it, though again, that's a great word to take. Our experience has also played this out. What happens when you sin? When you fall short, I mean, whatever category, whatever definition, in your worst moments, what happens when you sin? Sin isolates you, doesn't it? It causes you to turn inward. It causes you to want to lie to those that you love and care for and respect. You want to say that you didn't do something that you did do. That's what sin does. It it isolates us. But the Bible would say that not only does sin isolate us from each other, which is real and painful and awful, but also it isolates us from God. That there is a, a consequence related to our sin, which is death or separation, not only from each other, but even from the God who created us. And ultimately, there's a price that has to be paid. But thankfully, when we think of that price that must be paid for the wrong that has been done, Jesus came to pay that price. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to give himself for our sins, to pay the price that our sins deserve. And why did he do that? He did that because he loves us. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And again, we don't just have to take the scripture's word for that. When we understand that reality, our experience ought to speak to confirm it to be true in the, in the sense that who sacrifices for someone else? Sacrifice is an expression of love. Jesus gave himself as an expression of love to take the penalty that our sins deserve. John chapter 3, verse 16 lets us know that the way that we activate that gift so that the death that Jesus died covers not just sin in general, but my sin, is by belief. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friends, when Paul talks of Jesus here, he reminds us of what he has done for us. The new that he has ushered in is a new life, a new hope, a new forgiveness, 
a new opportunity because he gave himself to take the penalty that our sins deserve. As we gather today, friends, if if you have trusted in Christ at some point in the past, never lose sight of that. Let it encourage you again today. But if you're here today and you have never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, know that this truth is available for you today. Jesus died for you. He gave himself to take the penalty and the punishment that your sins deserve, not just mine. The new he ushered in is new that is available to all of us. And as we begin a new year, some of you have carried a burden in today that you need to leave at the cross and walk out a new creation in Christ. That can happen by trusting in Jesus in this moment, right where you sit, for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus came to give himself for our sins. But not only did he give us that gift and that rescue and that deliverance, but Paul keeps talking. And he says that Jesus also came to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, Jesus giving himself for our sins, that points to our ticket into eternity. That that points to our opportunity to spend forever with God in heaven because our sins are forgiven and the penalty has been fully paid for in Christ. But when Paul here talks about Jesus also came to deliver us, or the word behind that word deliver is the word rescue, to rescue us from the present evil age, he's not talking about something that will happen one day. He's talking about something that happens today. Today, we have the opportunity to be rescued or delivered from the present evil age. What he means by that is that our world in which we live right now is broken and corrupt and has all kinds of problems, right? There are destructive patterns of behavior that we are dabbling in and and just around, not only in our own lives, but also in the lives of others. And if you're here today and you're like, I would love to begin a new year, I would love to begin a new life, I would love to have a new opportunity to live a different way than I've been living, guess what? Jesus has made that possible. He has made it possible for you to be delivered from this present evil age today by finding a new Lord, a new master, a new Savior who will guide you in a different way with a different provision to live the life that he's called you to live. Friends, Jesus offers us a deliverance or a rescue from the life that we're stuck in now. This really is the message of Galatians. The entire letter, some might want to take and box up merely as talking about our initial salvation, the moment that we trust in Christ. But I really think Paul wrote the letter to not just talk more about the salvation that we have through Jesus' death, but also to talk about the hope that we have because of Jesus' life. And that's a hope that we have even today. This is a book not just about our salvation or our justification. It's a book about our sanctification or our growth in our relationship with him. Over the months ahead, we're going to look at a number of different series from this book Right now, obviously, we're in the next seven weeks in this new normal series, looking at the first couple of chapters of Galatians, talking about the new that Jesus has normalized. Then we'll be in the new way later this spring in chapters 3 and 4, talking about how we relate to God by faith. Then we'll talk about a new power that is available to us through the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And then lastly, we'll be talking about the new love that ought to be experienced by all within the church as described in Galatians chapter 6. 
These are things that are pointing us to the rescue from the present evil age in which we currently find ourselves. And we're going to bask in that this year. And why should we listen to any of that, friends? We should listen to it because our living Lord has made it possible. He's set up a new covenant. And he's rescued us from sin in this evil age. May we embrace it by faith as we follow him this year. Father God, thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity to really have an introduction today to this great letter that you gave to us through Paul. Father, thank you that you had the believers in Galatia, in all of those churches, not just keep it to themselves, but share it with others, that it would eventually be included in our Bible so that we might know of the new that Jesus has ushered in. Father, may we trust in him. For those who have already trusted in Christ, that that we would just see you rescue us from this evil age, that we would follow you anew in this new year. But for others, Father, who have never trusted in Christ, that today might be a day where they begin following you, a day where they realize that Jesus' death on the cross was a gift to pay for their sins, that they might receive and experience your love and forgiveness today. We thank you so much for the privilege of wrestling these things through together as a church family as we follow you together. We pray these things in Jesus' name.